Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I really don't like this concept of teaching people to see the person and not the disability. Then why can't people see a person with a disability and not freak out or not feel uncomfortable? You know, it's like that weird backhanded compliment that we get when people say, you know, oh, I don't think of you as disabled because you're my friend or you're really cool or because you're just like me. And can we not be all of those things? Can we not be cool and likeable and people's friends but not also be proud of our disabilities? I kind of hope that we can. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Hello, this is Catherine MacDonald here announcing... 3CR Radical Philosophy Program. It's on 8.55 on your AM dial. Your fantastic philosophy program introducing us to women philosophers. The inability to hear is a nuisance. The inability to communicate is the tragedy. Lou Ann Walker, A Loss for Words, The Story of Deafness in a Family, 1986. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today, or the next two weeks, we're going to have two programs on disability. And I'm speaking to Chloe McKenzie about disability. So what was it that inspired you to study disability? I, it's actually not something that's um, a major part of my thesis or anything like that, but it was actually in some conversations with some fellow uh, students who I did honours with, and they themselves were actually studying various aspects of disability. Um, and so it was kind of that combined with reflecting on my own experiences with mental illness as a philosophy student that kind of made me really pay attention to disability in society and also within philosophy. So you have a particular interest in the way bioethicists construct their theories. Yes, I'm quite interested. The work I do in my master's is largely looking at the way that ethics, ethical theories are constructed. And so I think my interest with disability is kind of similar. I'm coming at it from that angle. So I'm particularly interested in the way that bioethicists uh, construct their theories and what kind of concepts they leave in and what they leave out and what perspective they're coming from, I guess. Mm, So can you go into a little more detail on the individuals and their theories? Yeah, sure. So um, we have, well, the two main ones that I'm kind of looking at are Julian Savalescu and Peter Singer. So Julian Savalescu has a principle um, called the principle of procreative beneficence, which is the idea that prospective parents should select the child of the possible children they could have who's expected to have the best life or at least as good a life as the others based on the relevant available information. So breaking that down, what it basically means is he's kind of advocating for pre-genetic implantation diagnosis and other kind of medical 
technologies to be used in selecting for a child that will have the best possible life out of the possible embryos you could have. And then we've got Peter Singer, whose views are, I guess, a bit more controversial. He kind of thinks that birth is an arbitrary distinction for when it might be morally wrong to, I guess, kill a, a fetus or an infant. So he actually thinks that there's no no moral distinction between abortion and killing an infant, which is quite a controversial view. Um, how that plays out in disability is the idea that because infants aren't actually persons until he thinks at least a few months into their lives, that it might actually be morally acceptable for parents who give birth to a disabled child to actually consider well, he calls it euthanasia, um, euthanising that child and giving birth to a new one. So I think they're both quite controversial views. Yes, they are, and uh, especially going into genetic counselling. Um, I know when my daughter was diagnosed as having a, a severe to profound hearing loss when she was three, they sent me off to speak to a woman to do some genetic counselling and I said to her that I, I didn't want to have any genetic counselling because if the deafness was hereditary, I didn't think that, that it was a problem. There was no problem with having another deaf child. So that was the extent of the conversation and I left. Yeah, and I think that's the way a lot of people feel. It's not actually something that comes into their or, or that people really want to consider as being part of their decision-making process in having a child. I guess for some people, I think there is the situation where parents often do find it hard, but I think that sometimes the focus of, of the difficulty in these theories is fixed on the enjoyment or the pleasure that parents will get out of having a child, whereas I think the the locus of the concern is actually more like, how can I be the best parent I can to the child that I'm going to have? And I think it's, if we look at the concern being focused on that child, as you said, you know, you didn't think that it would be a problem. So I think any, you know, perhaps any kind of, uh, concern and any kind of um, difficulty that parents might have in, in you know, genetic counselling might come more from what the impacts are going to be on the child rather than I think that's kind of one thing that I think Savalescu and Singer maybe focus too much on the, the parents rather than the child. There seems to be that technology has advanced so much that you know, it's making it possible for people to more or less choose their their children but I was at a doctor's appointment and I mentioned how I hadn't had a blood test until for many years since my uh, before my daughter was born and I only needed to have that because she was two weeks overdue and the woman who was nurse who was taking my blood said oh well now you have to have this test to see if the child has down syndrome and I was absolutely floored by her, well, first of all, saying it was compulsory. I mean, it, it, what happens if you, if you don't want to have it? Does someone tie you down and give you the test for a start? And I thought, well, there's quite a few comebacks I could have said, but I, I chose to say that, oh, so if you have the test and you find out your child has Down syndrome, is that so that you can book them into early intervention? And she just looked at me and was quite surprised by, by my response. 
Yeah, I think that it is understandable for parents to have concern about any difficulties that might be involved in raising a child with Down syndrome and how that child might be impacted. But to say kinds of things that I think a lot of bioethicists are saying are really problematic. And I think that's part of one of the things that I'm interested in looking at is how these bioethical theories actually do... I guess, link up with theory in healthcare and and practice. And I think that some of these intuitions that, you know, are coming out in assuming that everybody has to have this, um, that everybody will want to have this compulsory test are kind of coming out from some of these ideas that are coming out of bioethics. How does this obscure many important considerations that should be involved in conversations about disability Well, I think as we've kind of discussed, it seems like these conversations are focused very much on, you know, the happiness and pleasure and absence of suffering for the parents, the potential usefulness of a child to society and its parents. And there's not really much consideration given to the, the children who will actually be born and most of it is just assumed that those children will have um, inferior lives that won't be as valuable. And I think that is very false. And the the reason for that is I think nobody's actually really gone to people in the uh, community of people with disabilities and actually asked them what they think. Nobody's talking to people who have Down syndrome. And there are actually quite a number um, this year, there are quite a number of very successful people with Down syndrome, you know, who who have shown that, and I don't think this is something that's happened recently. I think people with Down syndrome have always just been living their lives, but, you know, it has gotten media exposure. And I think it, it is showing people that they can just live happy, worthwhile lives like everybody else. And yeah, I think that's, I think the main thing is um, that, yeah, th- th- those kind of considerations about the lives that people with disabilities and those who care for them are actually living are left out of the conversation. Yeah, that that's right. Now, do you think that these theories are harmful to people with disabilities? I Yeah, I think they are. Obviously, I can't speak on behalf of the disabled community, but there are some really great articles, two that I would point out are by uh, Stella Young and Harriet McBride-Johnson, who've both pointed out how they were actually both babies with disabilities who, according to Singer and Savalescu, it wouldn't have been morally wrong for them to have been killed or for their embryo to have been chosen against. And so I think their articles are a really good way into thinking about how these ethical theories actually do impact people with disabilities. And both of those um, writers do actually talk about the ways in which their experiences haven't been considered in these ethical theories. And I think that's um, a really, really important thing to consider. Um, And the fact that people do actually, people in the disabled community do actually think that these theories are harmful, I think is probably the biggest sign that they are if you know those people are the ones who have the best insight into what it's like to live with a disability yeah it's sort of well it's it should be of concern to people too that there does seem to be some sort of a line that if if you're this badly disabled or you're not too badly disabled you maybe you could be allowed to live and I I said with with the deafness I mean I'm sure there's people around who would say oh well that just wouldn't be a very good quality of life being deaf and there could be other people who say that well being dyslexic that's not a very good quality of life so we'll have to let any dyslexic people go as well 
but it's just sort of, I mean, it would impact on somebody with a disability who knows that society would would have preferred that they they weren't here or as you were saying that they were actually killed when they were when they were quite young but so i mean are they are they are the bioethicists drawing any line in the sand as to who decides if somebody is too badly disabled or have they taken it upon themselves to judge somebody else's quality of life? I think that's a complicated question. Um, I think the answer is kind of yes and kind of no. They haven't drawn a strict line in the sand in the sense that they've come up with a list of, you know, disabilities that qualify and that don't. But they have made certain value judgments about lives of people with disabilities. I know um, Peter Singer uses as an example in some of his work, spinal bifida, as one of the conditions um, which parents might consider choosing another child who didn't have um, spinal bifida. And I think... You know, um, in her article, Stella Young mentions that she has a friend who's living a great life and is enjoying it and is, you know, having a great time who has that condition. And it just kind of, yeah, seems really problematic that the the lives, it's, you know, spina bifida affects people with spina bifida. And so why aren't we asking those people how how it affects them and what they think. And if they think their lives are worth living, then that should be enough for the rest of us. And I think um, also, as you pointed out, that the different the different conditions and, and their different difficulties, I guess, that come with each one. I think also uh, an interesting point is that a lot of conditions actually are made worse by society's portrayal of them. For example, um, I can't speak, I don't have a physical disability, so I can't speak for that. But having a mental illness, part of what the difficulty is in having a mental illness is society's misunderstanding of it, finding it difficult to accept, the misunderstandings about what it actually involves, about you know how to help those kind of things and those I think actually make it more difficult to live with a mental illness than if we actually had a society who did support people with mental illness in a a helpful way and I think that might also carry over to physical disability as well that it's actually more these theories that are helping to stigmatize disability that are actually having a greater impact on people with disability than their own disability actually is. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Chloe McKenzie about disability. Could you explain a bit more about the concepts of rationality, objectivity, neutrality? Yeah, so basically those concepts, I think, are three that have been around in philosophy for a very, very long time, and a lot of philosophy is founded on them. So by bringing them up in this conversation, I'm not at all suggesting that we get rid of them, but how I think they play out in debates um, or conversations, I guess, about disability is that often these ethical theories speak as if they were speaking from a position that is rational, objective and neutral, and that people with disabilities are in opposition to those. They're too emotional. They're not neutral because they're speaking from a position um, of a disabled person, and also that they're their views are very subjective and as such that this somehow makes their view not worthy or not 
they're not given as much weight in conversations. And so I think that this is part of what I'm interested in is the way that bioethicists often construct their theories. They highlight these principles, either obviously or subtly, as being the kind of criteria by which we must judge whether a theory is appropriate or not. I think that the problem that that leads to is, as we've previously discussed, the exclusion of disabled voices in these conversations because any perspective, any disabled perspective is then treated as if it doesn't meet the criteria by which um, a successful conversation or a successful theory happens. I've heard it said that anybody who has a disability themselves is just too emotional to really have a valid view on disability. Yeah, which just seems really problematic because, I mean, people with disabilities are really the only ones who this is impacting. So it kind of seems like, to me at least, uh, the fact that disabled people have the only realistic perspective of what it's like to live with a disability should really be the ones at the centre of these conversations and whose voices are being heard. Yeah, what is epistemic justice? (laughs) So epistemic injustice is a concept by um, Miranda Fricker, who is a British philosopher, and it's the idea that somebody is wronged in their capacity as a knower. So in the context of a person with a disability, they're perspective or their testimony might not be be taken as seriously because of their the perception that they don't have knowledge in the same way that everybody else has knowledge so in in the previous example we kind of discussed it's the idea that you know because people with disabilities have a particular perspective which is being a disabled person they their their views therefore aren't taken as seriously because they're um, clouded by emotion or something like that and so we tend to not treat their testimony as as valid as we might somebody without a disability do you think that philosophy as a discipline gives equal consideration to people with disabilities That's a really good and really difficult question. I think that sometimes philosophers, I think, think that they're above the kind of biases that operate in these cases. And there's a lot of work, much of it philosophical, that suggests that that's just not true, that philosophers themselves, um, as people who live in a society and a culture and all that sort of thing, are actually still susceptible to the same biases. So I think that they're definitely... In that sense, there there are at least unconscious biases operating, which mean that people tend to be biased against people with disabilities. There's also been some interesting discussion um, following Peter Railton's Dewey lecture earlier this year where he discussed his experiences with depression that make it clear that even within philosophy departments there's a fear of being misunderstood and not accepted for having a mental illness. So I think even philosophers haven't quite come to terms with their fellow philosophers. As a discipline, we haven't come to terms with it. Elizabeth Barnes also gives um, a, writes a really interesting article where she talks at the start about sitting in philosophy classes while people casually debate whether or not it would be you know, morally okay to choose to save a non-disabled person over a disabled person. And, you know, she is disabled. And so she kind of discusses having to sit in class and talk about those discussions. And so I think that philosophy still does have a lot of issues with disability. And I think that looking at these influences, I think that philosophy hasn't yet reached a point where it does give equal consideration. I hope that's kind of what these conversations will help to to change. But I think there is still a lot to be done in a lot of different areas. So how do you think that people with disabilities can have a stronger voice within society? Uh, I think it's really just about, I mean, 
reducing stigmatization against uh, people with disabilities, both physical and uh, mental illness. Centering uh, disabled people in conversations about disability, I think, is one of the main things. I think one of the best ways we learn is through listening to the testimonies and stories of other people. And I think really giving space to disabled people to speak about their experiences and to speak about what they think the answers to these questions should be. That certainly doesn't mean that, you know, where there aren't still conversations to be had, but I think disabled people certainly have to be centred in these conversations. And so I think that I think would be the first and perhaps most important step. But then again, I'm, you know, certainly can't speak on behalf of everybody. That's just, um, I guess, what my personal perspective would be. Do you ever sort of envisage that there will be a world where people with disabilities are given equal consideration? I like to think there is, and I certainly hope there will be. I think we have a really long way to go, but I know that there are certain circles in which disability is given a lot of space and the testimony and experiences of people with disabilities are given, you know, a lot of space in, you know, intersectional feminist frameworks and such. It's, you know, there is a striving for a certain space to be opened up for women with disabilities. And so I think if we try and um, think in terms of that, I think, yeah, there are already some examples of, you know, small pockets of society where this, even if it's not perfect yet, where they are given equal consideration. So I think it is possible, but I think we just have a long way to go before it's society-wide. Yeah, I think that it's sort of a double-edged sword because society expects people with disabilities to go out and get a job, join the workforce and to be like everybody else, but society seems very resistant at removing the barriers to doing that, don't they? Yeah, certainly. And I think that's actually one of the, you know, the biggest problems is that often people with disabilities are only seen as valuable or worthy of consideration in virtue of their being, you know, a taxpayer, a worker, all of those kind of things. And I think that's a a wider problem, but it impacts people with disabilities a lot more than, you know, able-bodied people, for example, neurotypical people, for example. Yes, I think you're 100% right about that. Yeah, I think it's, um, especially when you meet a a new circle of friends or go to a a particular group and people will say, well, what do you do? Referring to your paid employment. And it's a way that people judge you, isn't it? It's a way you sort of have, uh, they judge your status in society. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And um, yeah, I think that obviously has a lot um, high impact as well because then if you consider that in terms of disability and as you say there are additional barriers to being a person with a disability then that's also likely to flow on to social circles as well so I think that's twofold there I think you're right in showing that as an example but also that brings up then another case in which if you're already facing discrimination in the workplace or barriers to getting into the workforce then you're also likely to experience the flow-on effects of that in terms of um, socializing and such so yeah I definitely agree with you there. Great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks so much for having me. And I've been speaking to Chloe McKenzie about disability. I'm Sue Dodds and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial. And that was Deep Water Lullaby by Heidi Everett. And hope you've enjoyed the program today. And I'd like to thank Chloe McKenzie for her interview 
on disability. And next week, Radical Philosophy will be broadcasting on the International Day of People with a Disability. So tune in next week and we will have another interview about disability.